Hey, it's Jeremy. And it's still Julie. And we're still asking... What the hell? (laughs) Good one. Hi, Jeremy. We're back. Yay. Hey, Jeremy, do you have a, a chief complaint for me, sir? I have a really big chief complaint today because I spend a lot of time in the car just like you do, Julie. And outside of what we've already addressed being the billboards that are stem cell clinics everywhere, I feel like <laughs> maybe it's just me because I listen to the I'm the target demographic here and I listen to the radio stations that basically would be sending these out. But I feel like every other ad is telling me that I have low testosterone and I should go get it checked and start taking stuff or frankly, just order it directly from them or my penis is going to stop working and I probably should see somebody for that or any of the above. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like Every month there's a new company advertising something new and it makes me think that these people have to be making money, but I don't understand any of it. So I'd like to get to the bottom of that. What do you think? I think you should not listen to radio stations. That's fair. You should be listening to podcasts. That's all I got out of what you just said. That's all. Perfect. So we're going to end the podcast and (laughs) because I still listen to the radio from time to time. (laughs) Nerd. Yeah. And I can't fast forward through the advertisements, which is just bullshit. Honestly. All right. So. Anyhow, I really want to focus on on some male reproductive health here. I want to talk about testosterone. I want to talk about erectile dysfunction. I want to talk about all of that stuff. And so because of that, I want to bring on a good friend of mine and someone who specializes in, in this area, Dr. Mara Heeman. Mara is a fellowship-trained surgeon and researcher. She's an educator and patient advocate specializing in male reproductive and sexual health. She's an assistant professor of urology at University of Washington and a leader in men's health. She graduated from Rush Medical College with me, believe it or not, actually like 10 years ago, which is crazy that this goes by so quickly. She had highest academic honors. She was an AOA. She completed her general neurologic surgical training at Loyola in Chicago, and then completed a fellowship in andrology, male reproductive and sexual health at the University of Washington. Ultimately, she does a lot of work in this area. She's published a ton. She has connections out the wazoo, and she's just absolutely the right person to be on talking to us about this stuff. So with that, Dr. Heeman, join us. Well, geez, I'm (laughs) blushing over here on the other end of the line, Jeremy. So good to talk with you again. It has been 10 years since you know, our training subsided, but great to see you and talk with you. Yeah, I had that realization today that it had been 10 years and I had a little bit of a small panic attack, but it was fine. (laughs) And and I got through it. And uh, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about you. I mean, I did just do a little bit of your background, but tell us about how you got into urology, how you got into what you're doing, why you're doing the practice that you're doing right now. I found urology pretty early on in my undergraduate studies. Actually, I worked for a urologist at Rush, uh, where I eventually ended up doing med school with you. And he specialized in male sexual health and penile curvature. And maybe we can get into that later. And, you know, my interest was piqued, needless to say. I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to help take care of people in terms of quality of life. And so that led me down the path of urology and uh, male sexual and reproductive health. So I really focus on things like uh, erectile dysfunction, Peyronie's disease, which is that penile curvature that I just brought up, low testosterone, male fertility, and then some adjunctive uh, other conditions like testicular pain and some transgender issues as well. 
Super, super cool. And just to uh, get some basics out of the way, we are going to be talking about male genitalia here, but in keeping with the understanding that it is not always cisgender with male genitalia, this would apply to everybody, but we are going to be using the word male probably frequently here. So with the background of you, Mara, what I'd love to do is maybe start talking a little bit about erectile dysfunction because that was the advertisement that was in the car today. And I was just enthralled by the 55-second advertisement that told me I could get shockwave treatment to my penis and that it would start working better. And ultimately, it just led me to being like, I cannot wait to have this conversation. And I texted you about it. So here we are having about it. Can you just briefly maybe give everybody listening like a concept of even what erectile dysfunction is? What does that mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So there is a true definition of ED or erectile dysfunction. I'll probably just call it ED. It is the failure to get or keep an erection that is suitable for intercourse in at least 50% of attempts. So at least half of the time you're having difficulty getting or keeping your erection. That defines ED and it is extremely, extremely common. It is about 20, represents about 25% of men in their 20s have experienced this. And then really the numbers just skyrocket as men age up to 70 to 80% of men have pretty profound ED once you're in your 70s. So Jeremy, it, it may be coming for you. Oh, shoot. This, I feel like a lot of the podcasts we've done so far, Julie, I've ended up becoming the topic in some form or fashion. So I, which is <laughs> Maybe just interesting. Says something about you, Jeremy. Yeah, I feel like my anxiety levels have not gone down since we've started the podcast <laughs> in a weird way. You're the whipping boy. Yeah, the creative outlet is, is helpful. What are some of the common causes? Like what you said anywhere 20s to 70s. So like, obviously, that's probably not the same causes, I would think. We're actually doing a study on that right now at the University of Washington, just how things have changed over time. But we know that we as humans on this planet or Americans are getting less and less healthy. So some of the things we think about as the primary causes of ED, like diabetes, high blood pressure, having heart disease, those are all associated with erectile dysfunction. And those may have been things that affected guys in their 60s and 70s years and years ago, but now those things are affecting men in their 30s and 40s. So it can be various things across lifespan, but we always want to watch out for those kind of major health-related things like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. Diabetes represents the number one cause of erectile dysfunction and severe erectile dysfunction. Other common causes that I see are men who've gone through prostate cancer treatment or other pelvic surgery, men who may experience that penile curvature that I mentioned, or low testosterone can be sort of associated with ED. In the younger population, the world is a tough place to live in right now. We all know that. It's filled with trauma and stress, and those things can impact erections, whether you're nervous about getting an erection or not, that really does impact a guy's ability to get it up. Well, so say say someone's having trouble and is concerned and either goes to their primary care doctor and has the courage to bring it up. I'm sure that's like probably a big barrier for a lot of folks that are experiencing these problems is that they may feel, I don't know, for a variety of reasons, feel embarrassed or feel just not empowered to talk about these problems, even though they are so extremely common. So say that person has, you know, talked to their doctor or they've found you and made an appointment with you and they're having trouble with erectile dysfunction. Like walk me through what that would be like if the patient comes in and says, hey, I'm having this trouble. Kind of what are your next steps for that person? 
Yeah. I mean, the first thing that we do as doctors, as you guys know, is of course, take the history, try and understand exactly what's going on. Did this start suddenly? Is this sort of progressive over time? What's the status of the relationship you're in? Is it a new partner and this sort of just sprung up? Are you with a long-term partner? Did you have surgery down on the prostate? You know, what kind of what preceded the start of the ED and what other medical conditions do you have that may sort of predispose? There are some tests that are potentially indicated, things like blood tests to look at testosterone, all the way up to things like ultrasounds of the penis um, to test for blood flow characteristics. But my, you know, I always feel that my job is primarily to be an educator. Mm -hmm. You know, I am always thinking of sort of these five main causes of ED and there are five main causes of how men get erections, um, things like the blood flow, the nerve input, the health of the penis itself, the penile tissue, the nervous system in general, the st- meaning kind of like the stress level that a guy is experiencing, and then um, testosterone. So those are really the five elements of making a good erection. And, it, you know, I kind of am always thinking about those as I take that history and kind of go through the physical exam. A recipe for an, an erection yes. is w- what happened in the first 10 minutes of this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> not going to be the name of this episode. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> it's probably a really good call. I feel like Julie hit on something there, and, and maybe that's why I'm getting an advertisement every 30 seconds, but I feel like men are, generally speaking, uncomfortable talking about this. I mean, I can't get a man to come in and talk about a knee that hurts them. They're always, you know, <laughs> they, they literally like, I, I'm not going for whatever reason. And so to then take the next step and go see a doctor and be like, listen, I can't get an erection. Like, I can't, I, I cannot get a boner. It's not coming. Like, I feel like to take that step is is very, very difficult for people. And so now there's all these companies popping up that basically say, like, forget the doctor. It's uncomfortable. Just have a chat. You know, just, you know, like even just send us an email. We'll send you something. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Like, can you comment on that and what you've been seeing and kind of the perspective you have from your position? So there are so many different companies out there, like you mentioned, and they're direct to consumer. There have been studies looking at sort of Google trends for looking at just typing in, in the search bar, erectile dysfunction treatment, and it has just skyrocketed. But these websites are super duper common and more and more popping up every day. These have been looked at by folks that I am colleagues with and do actually seem to do a pretty good job of evaluating a guy's health history to see if there's any big red flags for cardiovascular disease and things like that. That's kind of the main thing that we want to watch out for. And they do a better job than I might like to think before prescribing things like, you know, Viagra, Cialis, things like that. So I don't think they're all bad. I also think that just getting these ads on TV, getting it out in the news has more men showing up because it does normalize. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's on sports radio, then I must not be the only one with this problem. So I'm happy that things are more normalized and then men show up because, you know, it could be five, 10 years that men may have ED. And then the later thing is the heart attack. Mm -hmm. And if they had seen someone like me, I could have, you know, made sure that they at least got looped in with the primary care doctor and got checked out well in advance. So I, I don't think they're all bad. I don't think they're necessarily great. Um, some of the clinics that really want to promote expensive experimental therapies, you mentioned stem cells, that's one of them. 
Um, those can be predatory. They can make really big false claims for rejuvenation and restoration of erections in all men without kind of really nailing down who's a, the best candidate and who may not benefit very much. So I always think it's helpful to see someone like myself or, you know, your primary, of course, but get a referral to someone like myself who may be able to kind of go through those questions of what may work, what may not work. That's so interesting. It really is. I did not expect you to say that. Honestly, I thought I thought this was going to be a complete like rag on like we're just gonna, we, we just were going to shit on all of those places. And I was ready for it. Like I got my boxing gloves up and I was ready to go. But it is interesting the way you put it, right? Because that does make a lot of sense. I mean, I guess it becomes more common vernacular for people. You don't feel like you're the only one. And it sounds like what you're saying to me is if somebody's trying to sell me something expensive, I should think twice. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But if people are asking me questions about my health history, that I'm probably in a place that at least is doing things semi the right way. That's a great summary. Yeah. I really like your use of the term predatory. And I, I haven't heard that being utilized for the other things that Jeremy and I have talked about as sort of like direct to consumer advertising about healthcare products. And I think that's a really great word choice. And I'm wondering, I mean, a lot of these advertisements that we're seeing are usually things that are trying to combat some degree of aging, you know, or, or things that are more common with aging. We, you know, we, we had a really great episode about stem cell use for pain and arthritis, things like that. But I'm wondering if we're seeing this stuff more frequently, A, just because it's just more common to have direct-to-consumer advertising and it's legal, so why not? But also because our population is older in general, too. So probably a link there. Yeah. And we're scared of dying. I don't want to be terrified of it. And we want to look hot and have erections. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I am no medical historian, but I do watch medical television shows. And, you know, you watch shows about medicine back in the 1900s, and they were peddlers of snake oil, going, mm-hmm. you know, back in that day, too, selling cocaine mm-hmm. as this panacea. <laughs> and, you know, now we know what we know about cocaine. I think it's just, it's, there's always someone trying to sell the next best thing, right. for sure. And so it is you know, incumbent on us as healthcare providers to really give our patients evidence-based care and help them understand why these things may or may not help. And certainly, you know, shockwave therapy, acoustic therapy, these are, you know, that is the, the hottest, latest and greatest for ED. And I'm happy to kind of talk about that. Yeah, please. If you're going to call it yeah. the hottest thing in erectile dysfunction, please hit us. Yeah. So shockwave therapy, I mean, shockwaves are sound waves. Um, they have been used in urology for many decades, primarily to break up kidney stones. So shockwaves are shot at the stone and they break it up through kind of wave force and lots of different big words that I don't remember from after taking my boards. But, <laughs> you know, so this has been looked at now in in the penis. Can we use less strong shockwaves to sort of create little micro trauma or little kind of breaks in the penis, spongy penile tissue that then stimulate new blood vessel growth and new nerve generation? Mm-hmm you know, it sounds peachy. It sounds totally beneficial. It sounds like it would totally work. But just like you said, Jeremy, some things sound too good to be true. And what is important to understand is that the litter, you know, in 
many, many studies that have looked at this, there is a subset of men in whom this may benefit. So men with mild erectile dysfunction, maybe moderate ED, who are on the pills like Viagra, but who are, they're losing effectiveness. The shockwave therapy may help them regain some effectiveness. Important to know though, that first, men with severe erectile dysfunction, I don't think there's a role at all. Um, I think they should watch out. You're going to spend a whole lot of money and not see a lot of benefit. Second, it's important to know that not all shockwave machines are made the same. So there are shockwave uh, machines that have been in these studies that may show some benefit, but then there are different types that are the more commonly used type because they're cheaper to buy. Mm -hmm. And those have not been studied as extensively or, you know, shown to be as effective. I've had patients ask me, can I buy the, the home acoustic treatment, you know, from Amazon? And that's honestly gonna, in my opinion, will probably do very, very little. It just reminds me of there was a Robin Williams quote where he he in a stand up he took like the Abtronic and he put it on his forehead and he said I'm <laughs> gonna stop buying stupid shit for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes me feel badly because people do spend a lot of money and mm-hmm. false promises. You know, for sure. There's things that do work, so yeah, that's one of my other goals is just always educating on what does work. Can I also put something on the record here? You said that something sounded too good to be true, and you. Talk- talked about something causing microtrauma to a penis to try to encourage blood flow and to and just I, none of that to any of the listeners, including myself, sounded too good to be true, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> From what I understand, it doesn't hurt. We actually don't offer it at um, my practice at the University of Washington, but I've had friends. I got I got guy friends in this field and they've tried it out on themselves. Yeah. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> I will say I did Google this when I got home when I heard it on because it was the first time I'd ever heard it on this advertisement. And the first thing that came up was a description that said it was a small wand like device, which uses targeted sound waves to stimulate penile tissue and encourage blood flow. And I was like, what type of website is this? Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, interesting enough. (laughs) I like when you talked about being an educator. I feel like that's it's kind of we're hoping to be a patient's bullshit detector. You know, yeah, and yeah, I, I think yeah, there is a bit of like personal accountability and let the buyer beware in these situations too. But you'd hope that you know folks would hopefully get funneled to to see specialists that are really well trained and understand the science behind these things and understand you know the actual evidence behind it. And and that's why it's really I think it's really great to have people like you, Mara, sort of dispelling some of the the, the bullshit out there because there's a lot. Happy to do it. We talk about this all the time, but we've talked about it even on a podcast before. It's the ugly truth that medicine itself is a business. Yeah. And certainly the business models are different at different places. So where, where, you know, Mara's working and where we work, you know, you have to see a certain amount of patients and do a certain amount of work to keep the lights on. But it's not the same type of concept when you're going to a for-profit place that basically says, we do one thing, come in here and we'll make your erectile dysfunction better. And that's the only thing that they do. And they need to get you in the door. Otherwise, the lights turn off. Like that is, you got to be very careful there. Yeah. And, you know, just the last thing on this is one of my good friends and colleagues at UCLA just published a paper this past month looking at what type of providers are offering shockwave therapy and found that only 20 something percent, like 23 percent of the shockwave therapy in the United States is being or in the eight major metropolitan cities in the United States is actually being given by a urologist. It's mostly folks who, 
you know, may not have had any formal training in erectile dysfunction or penile health or penile anatomies. That's crazy. Yeah. So that just kind of speaks to that it may be it may be a money grab. Yeah. I wonder if these are like startup companies that then reach out to a physician, somebody, a physician that'll bite to like be their medical director. And, you know, you'd hope that the physician would have the integrity to, I don't know, be a medical director for a company that they have training and board certification in that primary specialty. But I mean, I'm not here to totally throw shade on that, but it just seems, I don't know, yucky. <laughs> Is that the word I want to use? It's kind of shady. Yeah, it's again, it's I think our duty to help our patients just be aware of what's out there, including the good things that are out there. I'm actually leaving this conversation a lot more encouraged about the ED world than I thought I was going to just because of the fact that you were saying that some of these companies are actually doing okay. I was getting a little bit concerned. So I feel a little bit uplifted actually about it. Hey, I think everybody would probably want to hear about the, like, let's take away the medical issues and just say that somebody's going to end up taking a pill for this thing. Like kind of talk to us about the common ones that are out there, how they work and how they should be used. Well, the first one that came onto market was Viagra. Um, that was developed in the 1990s. It was developed as a lung medication for folks who are sick in the hospital and noticed that it was giving men erections. And so it was investigated, got FDA approval, and then of course was approved for direct to consumer marketing in the 1990s and became a multi-billion dollar, you know, field right away. The now generic Viagra is called Sildenafil and generic Cialis is Tadalafil. These are what are going to be marketed on a lot of those websites that we kind of mentioned before. In general, these medications are very, very, very safe. Um, they're very, very widely used. I think they're, you know, the second most commonly used medication in the world after cholesterol medication is what I was once told. I can't verify that as fact, but very commonly used. They have the real difference between the two that I just mentioned are the pharmacokinetics, how quickly they work and how long they last and whether you need to take them on an empty stomach or doesn't matter. So in general, the sildenafil, which is generic Viagra, you want to take it about an hour to 90 minutes before sex. It works best if taken on an empty stomach and doesn't work very well if you eat it with a cheeseburger. You still need to be aroused. You won't just get an erection out of the blue. Once you take that pill, you'll still need to be kind of in the mood. And the goal is just to kind of boost your natural system. Common side effects for that medication are headache, A number one, nasal congestion, and facial flushing. Some men talk about a little indigestion and muscle aches more with the second pill, which is Tadalafil or Cialis. Um, that lasts a lot longer in your system still have to take it well in advance of when you want to use it. And it doesn't matter if you take it with food. That's a, a popular one because it just requires less forethought and can be used for young folks who have young kids at home and don't know when you're going to get that time to squeeze in a, a session. And uh, that's a good one. That's great. That's really helpful to know. And I love hearing that these medications are generally extremely safe because they are so commonly used. And that, you know, kind of, you know, makes you feel better that it's not something that is really high risk for folks and can help a lot of people. And, and again, like I think increasing access to medication that is safe and effective is, is always a good thing. I'd like to pivot over to talking about 
low testosterone or low T hypogonadism. I mean, I want you to use the nomenclature that that we should be using. You you tell us, Mara. (laughs) Another one that I feel like we see a lot advertised or spoken about in social media. Give us an idea of like, what do you think is meant by or what we should take in? Like, give us sort of your definition of like, what would be low T, you know, a situation that would qualify as low T? So, I mean, testosterone is another one of these things that gets talked about left, right, and center. Any man who may have low energy who's feeling lackadaisical is told he may have low T. If you're in the gym, if you're, you know, weightlifting, you may see someone talking about giving yourself testosterone injections. And it's definitely something that should be overseen by an experienced medical provider. The reason why is because this is not as low risk as those other pills that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. This is has other side effects from really raising your blood counts, which can put you at a cardiac risk to things like changing your fertility, which not many people or even medical providers are aware of. So testosterone, you know, low T, it is very worthwhile getting evaluated for low T if you have erectile dysfunction, if you are having trouble keeping muscle mass, if you are feeling lethargic, it is reasonable to get checked. What getting checked means is getting two blood tests before nine in the morning. So these blood tests will look at testosterone and a couple other hormones in your body to see if it, you know, when we match it up against that normal sort of peak value that men have in the morning, is it actually lower than it should be? And it's worthwhile, again, talking with a trained professional about whether actually taking testosterone makes sense for you or whether it you know, you may want to try other medications that can boost your own body's production of testosterone because fertility really comes into play. Testosterone, when you take it in injection form or gels or many different forms that we have to give it, it actually shuts down sperm production. Mm -hmm. So men who are interested in creating a family, please do not use testosterone. I really struggle personally with the concept of low T and understanding whether it's like a real condition or not. And I don't mean to make that sound derogatory to the fact that it it truly is a diagnosis. So I realize it does exist. But one of the things that I feel like is so hard to tease out here is that I'm going to read you what Healthline says is signs of low testosterone. Decreased muscle mass, a reduced sex drive, erectile dysfunction, and mood changes like irritability and depression. And I read that. And the first thing I think to myself is that's aging. Or being a father, you know. Having little kids running around. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's last week. Like, it just it kind yeah. of feels like the symptoms of this condition are just, like, obviously disturbing, but at the same time, kind of normal. So, like, first of all, how do we determine if low testosterone symptoms, like, I guess you have to get tested. So, maybe my my more specific question is, if I tested testosterone on everybody over the age of 40 or 50, would it be low on everybody? Like, how many people actually have normal testosterone at those ages? Quite a few, quite a few. And it is important to understand that there are different sort of some men fall in a higher category and some men just are more close to that sort of threshold of the bottom. But I totally, totally agree with the fact that many of these symptoms are multifactorial, meaning they could be related to sleep apnea. Yeah, you're tired because you're choking in your sleep. So yeah, Again, that's why it's important to not grab testosterone from your gym buddy and really to talk to a doctor about whether 
these symptoms make sense with the numbers on the page when you finally get those blood draws? And does treatment make sense for you? Because it it's not the cure-all for, you know, feeling like you have low sex drive if you're also depressed. You know, these there, there are many things that can cause those symptoms. So it is good to see someone who can kind of tease that out for you. So say you have someone who you test them twice and they are below what's considered the normal limit. What's the next step? And then you're probably going to be helping them choose some type of pharmacologic treatment. And then how frequently are you planning to see them or follow up testing, that kind of stuff? Like, can you just give us, you don't have to give us I mean, like every single option for everybody because I'm sure that there's a lot, but I'm curious to see like, okay, now I, you know, my patient is, it meets the diagnosis for low testosterone and where do they go from there? First, we talk about the different treatment options, things as easy as using a patch or gels that you put on every day. But those don't make a lot of sense for guys who have young kids or, you know, close contacts who that gel may rub off on. Injections are very common. So this is a a shot that you would give yourself at home. And you would be taught, of course, by the medical staff how to do that yourself. There are little pellets that I do insertions, you know, an insertion procedure of. These are little they're sort of like little testosterone Tic Tacs that get sort of put into the fatty region of the the love handle, if you will. Mm-hmm. And those are really long lasting. So guys come in for that about every three to four months um, and have, have that procedure. The follow-up really depends on which one of those modalities we choose. And, but usually it involves rechecking blood tests at about a month after treatment, after treatment has been started. And then kind of looking at how the peak and the trough, the kind of, you know, when you're giving yourself testosterone, it shoots up and then it slowly comes down. And that sort of, again, pharmacokinetics kind of changes based on which one of those treatment options you select. And that changes kind of how we we choose our lab follow-up. This is a stupid question, but where are you putting the gel? Where does the gel go? Yeah. So usually the most common form is right onto the shoulders and okay. sort of the chest, upper chest area. There used to be a formulation that was a deodorant style roll on in under the armpit. Cool. I've seen a lot of guys putting the gel in other places though. So where where what as is they were doing it as instructed. <laughs> I had a gentleman using it on his scrotum, which was interesting. I had never heard of that one before. I mean, you can't really blame him, but that's not like, those dots aren't too far to connect. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Hopefully the gel doesn't have the same type of ingredient like Icy Hot. Oh, no. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, no. Although some, you know, some may like that. Not from experience, whole, by the that's way. That's a whole different podcast. Whole yeah, different exactly. Podcast. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting outside the scope of what the health. I should have mentioned, though, that another very important piece of the follow-up is actually assessing how you feel. Do you, does, do you actually feel better on this treatment? Mm-hmm. Most folks feel really good when you're put on steroids right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after a couple months, they may coast back to where they were before. And that tells me that maybe this treatment wasn't so necessary. And that's okay. It's okay to come off of testosterone. Yeah. So you, you said steroids, but you meant testosterone there, right? Both. Oh. Well, mm-hmm. so, ster- so testosterone oh, interesting. is one type of steroid. Yeah. I was thinking prednisone when you said that. It's a different world on on orthopedic side, yeah. Yeah, but you feel really good on prednisone too. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and you feel really good when you're taking estrogen for, you know, various other things. So all of these are types of steroids that make you feel pretty zippy. Vice versa, if somebody does feel good, is it a lifelong treatment? Like 
how do you people get off of it or that kind of thing? Yeah, that's um, a really important facet of testosterone use is that, yes, it can necessitate lifelong use. So what when you take testosterone, it actually sort of shuts down your body's own production of testosterone. And if you're on it for long enough, that can mean that that system no longer works. And so that is absolutely true that it can be lifelong if you've been on it for a couple years and try to come off of it. What are the risks of going on it? I know that the thing that was hammered in my head is that this can increase the risk of heart attacks and the people that are having it are generally in the age demographic that that's a problem, but maybe that's changed over the time. This is not the the literature I follow all that closely. So mm-hmm. why should people not be on it? So there are a couple major risks that we talk about. And that cardiovascular risk that you mentioned is actually pretty controversial. Okay. There was a very big study done of 20,000 veterans that was published that showed that testosterone increases your cardiovascular risk of heart attacks. And it was a badly done study. And there are many other studies that show that it doesn't increase your risk. However, it what testosterone does is it can increase your blood counts. So it can make the blood a little thicker, which theoretically could increase your risk of cardiovascular events or strokes. Testosterone use can worsen sleep apnea. So men should be treated for sleep apnea or rule it out before starting testosterone. It can, it has been a little controversial in the space of prostate cancer detection and treatment. Mm -hmm. I say controversial because we, you know, historically we've always thought that testosterone is a major driver of prostate cancer. And so giving more testosterone may lead to more prostate cancer. Well, when we further kind of dissected this controversy, what seems to be more clear is that testosterone use may simply unveil a prostate cancer that would have presented on its own regardless of the testosterone. So it's not causing prostate cancer, but it can just sort of unveil the prostate Mm -hmm. cancer. So I do recommend prostate cancer screening for men who are on testosterone in the form of a blood test called a PSA. Those are kind of the main central risks that we talk about. And people that are on it more long-term, maybe not even like lifelong, but for, you know, months, years, are you recommending any type of follow-up testing to make sure that they're still within sort of like a therapeutic window or is that part of it? Absolutely. I test them regularly for the testosterone levels as well as liver function, blood counts, um, PSA, mm-hmm. and just checking in to make sure that symptomatically men are feeling well. I'm going to paint you an image of what's in my head when I think about like testosterone treatment. So I have this image of this guy showing up to a gym and he's been put on testosterone treatment and he feels like a million bucks because he does. He's been on testosterone treatment. And he feels like a million bucks. And he tells his body like, listen, you got to get on this. I've never felt younger. I've never felt better. I'm like making an advertisement here. But (laughs) that guy who has not had any symptoms except for maybe he's older than he used to be in some form or fashion or starts to maybe think. Which is pathological. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it is in in our culture, but and maybe is starting to have some of the, like we can go back to those symptoms. Those symptoms of it are part of life a little bit. So, but then says, you know what? You're right. I am going to go get tested. Goes get tested and he has some low T and, and like his testosterone levels low, but he wasn't really having all that many symptoms. Like, should that person go on testosterone? Like, does the lab value matter? as much as the symptoms matter? Or does it have to be both? Do you get what I'm getting at here? You know, in our guidelines, a few different guidelines say that it should be both. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, no one should take a major medication if they're not symptomatic. But it's going to make me lift more. I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to have bigger muscles. Like, why would I not do that? You're right, Jeremy. You're totally right. Let's all do it. <laughs> Sign me up. See what happens. I'm just speaking for the people. Well, I mean, I, get, I think what Jeremy's getting at and a question I have for you, Mara, is have you ever had somebody that you needed to tell them, like, you don't meet the diagnostic criteria for this dysfunction. So no, you know, Ken has testosterone. And I don't know. If yes, all the time. People get pissed off about that. Are they like, no, 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 I don't think so. I love that question, Julie. I love that question. Yeah. Like, are people <laughs> demanding this? So I just love I, that. Yeah, I don't know. I, as I said, my job is to educate. Mm-hmm. And so that even means educating when treatment is not reasonable for somebody. Mm-hmm. And usually people believe me yeah. because there's science behind it. Yeah. I feel like that's self-selection though, because I feel like those people came to you and didn't go to the low T centers of whatever, you know? So like, I feel like if some, like, so do you feel like if that person walked into one of those places and I'm not going to name a specific place, but walked into those places, they'd end up with testosterone? 100%. Yeah. So like, that's the shit. (laughs) Well, yeah. And again, it's, it's let the buyer beware a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. What I feel worst about when I see that is men who know they want to have children and then have gone to these clinics Mm -hmm. and are given testosterone and, and other medications that are sold to sort of rescue sperm production, rescue the testicles, Mm -hmm. but that does not work. So it's really um, distressing to guys when they've been on T for a year or two, and then their partners are wondering why they're shooting blanks. Mm -hmm. Well, because of the testosterone. So, um, and then we have to kind of go through a lot of potentially expensive other medication to kind of actually do the real sort of recovery of sperm production. So frustrating. It's so frustrating. Again, predatory is the, I think this is the ding, 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 the Pee Wee Herman word of the day here, you know, yeah, the magic word. And yeah. I feel like this one is so much more versus like the erectile dysfunction one to me, just like to me in this situation, just because like, again, the symptoms of low T are just so easy to tell somebody that they have. It's just so like, of course you have the symptoms. I mean, when's the last time you felt energy? When's the last time you felt good? And you're like, right. I don't know, before my kids were born? Like, yeah, <laughs> totally. It's just, uh, it just kills me. Go outside and touch grass. Yeah. <laughs> you feel better. I have another question on low T. So like, it feels like I'm also seeing a lot of advertisements for like non-pharmacologic options, like natural ways to get my testosterone mm-hmm. back. Frankly, probably even we could talk, did we talk about this for the erectile dysfunction? They're probably out there too. Like, are these natural remedies that I can just go buy that are not FDA approved? Like, are they actually helpful? Or if they are, like which ones are? And if they're all not, then let's just shit on them and move on. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other industry called the nutraceutical industry, which is a, mm-hmm. like a $50 billion industry, I think, and just rising, rising, rising. None of that is studied or approved by the FDA. So you just have no clue really what's in there and what you're taking. The answer is yes, they actually can work, but it becomes really muddy in terms of what, you know, substances you're getting. Some of them can be dangerous. So I don't generally recommend natural sort of tea boosters or ED treatments, other, you know, I mean, I think taking taking supplements that make you healthier will, you know, so that's a whole nother topic, which is just diet, exercise, 
living healthfully, getting a good night's rest and reducing stress, those are all things that are good for erections and good for fertility. So if you want to go sort of the natural route, that's those are the adage of just whatever's good for your heart is good for your penis and good for your fertility. That's what I, I sort of uh, counsel guys about as well. Are there studies that are going on on those things? I just feel like over the past couple of years, it's become very apparent that there may be some distrust in the medical community that we just turn our eyes on things that potentially could be helpful. And sometimes they seem completely ridiculous to us. But then there's other ones where you just said, like, some of them actually could work. So my guess my question is, is I realize why you're not prescribing them. They're not FDA approved. We don't have the studies. We don't know what causes harm. That all makes really good sense. Are people looking into it so that people know that we are trying to figure out if this stuff works? I think the short answer is probably no. Many synthetic medications are derived from natural substances. Mm -hmm. And so these natural substances are occurring in these sort of tea boosters and things like that and may actually be helpful because of that relationship sure. with the, the medications that we can give. So, but the problem is, you know, doing that in a controlled fashion is challenging. But the treatments that you guys currently have, what it sounds like what I've learned on this podcast so far is that you guys feel pretty good about the treatments we currently do have for these things, and they don't seem to have as many risks as at least even I thought coming in to this podcast. Yeah, I think we have a good armamentarium of treating ED for sure. Anything from pills to surgery to, you know, put in a penile implant, um, and across the spectrum of invasiveness, all things that I prescribe and men take to help. We didn't even get into penis pumps. You're right. That can be another episode, I guess. My favorite topic. Yeah. Oh, huge miss on our part. Uh <laughs> Next time. I Next know I'm time. interested. I mean, we can spend a minute or two talking about like devices or implantable devices. I know Mara, you're the one who's you're the specialist who's who's doing these things. Like I'm assuming these are for these are for men that have recalcitrant erectile dysfunction that it's not getting better with traditional non invasive treatment. Akin to like, you know, in in orthopedics, someone who has failed injections, failed physical therapy, failed medications for their knee arthritis, they're they're probably a good candidate for a joint replacement. Like there's some parallels here. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to, so a penile implant is a, a new hydraulic system. So erections are just hydraulics of strong blood flow into the penis. You get hard, the blood flows out, you get soft. And that's what this implant is doing. It's sort of replacing that system. It's not a cosmetic procedure. It's a truly a functional procedure to give people back more spontaneous sexuality. And it doesn't have to be at the end of the road. Mm -hmm. I talk about it sort of right off the bat as a potential option because the unfortunate thing about many of the treatment options we have for ED is that they do not allow a couple to have sort of spontaneous spur of the moment sex. You know, you need to be prepared. You need to take the pill, you need to give the shot, you know, all these things. Whereas the penile implant gives back that spontaneity. And so people do elect to get an implant, even if they haven't tried shots. And, cool. you know, some people don't want needles in their penis. I mm -hmm. couldn't venture a guess as to why they wouldn't want that. But <laughs> Weirdos. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to take a five minute break to think about that for a second. <laughs> Jeremy's on mute for a while. <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, a penile implant, super commonly done in, they were invented or sort of first used almost 50 years ago next year. So these are not new things. These are very well-established treatments mm -hmm. and 
surgeries and studies. And there are lots and lots of experts out there in our country who do a very good job of putting them in. Are they covered by insurance? Yes, oftentimes they are. I I can't say blanket statement yes, but they are covered by Medicare and many of the private payers follow in suit. I have, of course, had men be denied. And at that point, it's worth me giving, you know, my shot at appealing or writing the letters and things like that. But overall, I would say that the coverage of them is fairly good. I do think that that would make for a good social media post when somebody says, my insurer is denying me my right to an erection. Yeah. I think that would have a good ring to it. Sure. Can you talk about the latest technologies in that? Like, how does it work? At this juncture, it is the most commonly used one in the United States is a three-piece implant. So it just works by the movement of fluid through the system from a reservoir that holds on to fluid to a pump that is inside the scrotum and pressing the pump a dozen times moves fluid from the reservoir into the cylinders, which are located in your penis, in your sort of in your natural erectile chamber. And then there is a release button on the same pump in the scrotum that allows it to go back into the reservoir and allows you to get soft. In probably five years, it will be an e-electronic device where it's operated by Bluetooth Get your jokes out, Jeremy. I, um, there were so many at one time. I didn't really even know how to establish that. It was like, you're just stunned. Yeah, I'm just, stunned. I was actually thinking, the first thought that crossed my mind was how it would communicate with like that, the watch and like tell me my calories burned mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. I was like, what is going Yeah, on? so that is actually in... Um, Commence erection. Yeah, talk about wearable tech here, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think there, you know, there's been a lot of different steps to help the implant evolve in ways that make it less prone to breakage, less mm-hmm. prone to infection, things like that. And they are really great options for many, many people. I am very proud of us for how long we've made it in this podcast without a lot of dick jokes. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Well, that's why you wanted to know why I got in the field. Dick so. jokes. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, it does. That's it. It is the pinnacle. It is very easy to probably add levity to any office visit if you yeah. need to like break the ice a little bit. So that's pretty good. Sure. I promised some people that I would ask a couple of vasectomy questions. So let's just get them out there because I feel like I hear all the time of these stories of people who have vasectomies and they 10 years later have a child and maybe I don't hear these stories, but they're told to me third party. And then everybody says, yeah, they can grow back. And I'm like, this is what can we just address that for a second? These are stories, stories around a campfire and it's like, Ooh, and then it grew back. But I would, I I would just like to preface this Julie with like, remember for a second that the consequence of this is another child 10 years after your last child. So this would strike fear into Every man on the I face said. of the planet. So we're we're gonna address this shit. We're gonna address it's it right a scary now. Scary <laughs> story to tell in the dark. Yeah, shed some light, Mara. So it is true. Oh um, no! <laughs> the tubes that we separate are called the vas deferens, as you guys know, and um, they are separated in a variety of different techniques. They can be burned. They can be you know completely transected. They can be clipped. They can be sutured. And all of those techniques are performed to try to prevent those tubes from coming back together and sort of, as we call it, recannulating, meaning just forming a new canal. That occurs in about one in a thousand cases. And so it's not unheard of for that to happen. 
the more of those little techniques that I do when I do a vasectomy, the better I feel that it won't happen. Um, but it is possible. However, I will say that there is another possibility. And if a man is potentially has paternity after a vasectomy, he should have his semen checked because he may not be the owner of the sperm that caused that pregnancy. Oh, this would be another great Good. podcast. This is on Maury. <laughs> now we, we turned into Maury Povich. Yes, yes. I have seen You are not the father. Happen. Yeah, this is the start of this is the start of your murder podcast, Julie. That, Ooh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. This is like going to true crime territory. Yeah. So I'm devastated now. But it makes me think of uh, sorry, real quick, I have to make a joke because I can't not do well, it. Well, and I'm speechless, so you might as well do it. <laughs> the best evidence growing back is like when Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park has to say, Life um finds a way. <laughs> Those little swimmers. Yeah, it's so funny for you. It's just not that. It's just not that funny any, over any, here. Any time I can bring up Jeff Goldblum is yeah. a great day. It usually is for me too. But now we're talking about these things growing back together. So, True. If, if I guess my question to you is, when they when you have a vasectomy, you get tested and you can get up to two, I think, covered or whatever to make sure that you have no semen. Should we be getting tested again? Like, should be men get tested every five years? Like, because you just told me that it could fail. So, like, this seems like high stakes to, like, never get tested again. The guidelines say no, that you don't need to get tested again. The guidelines don't have to raise um, it's that kid. Funny, though, <laughs> it's funny, though, that you mentioned that because I actually had a patient just yesterday, and I've seen just so many men with history of vasectomy. I saw a guy just yesterday who gets an annual semen analysis for that reason. And I thought that was really novel. He's really taking his healthcare and his partner's healthcare into his own hands. Mm-hmm. Literally into his own hands. What's the out-of-pocket cost there? Usually like $80. Okay. That seems a lot less expensive than another child. So I think that that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Jeremy's like on his way out the door to the fertility Well, listen, it doesn't, have to right happen, it doesn't have to happen <laughs> tomorrow, but I do feel like you just made some life-changing sure. medicine over here. So... <laughs> that was an important question I had. I and I, but vasectomies overall are very successful, from what I understand. Like, like obviously yeah. they're they're maybe surgeon dependent and whatever. But I, I I can't remember what the stats are. Maybe you know them, but I feel like they're really really successful. Didn't she just say one in a thousand fails? That's the fail of like it grows back. But I'm talking about like overall, right? Or is that the same stat? Same thing. Oh. Yeah, same thing. You know, I think it's ever more important to talk about forms, different forms of contraception, mm-hmm. this day and age, and. I do think that vasectomies are a fantastic way for partners to support women and, again, offer just an alternative form of permanent sterilization so that couples can sort of be in control. And they're very typically very, very quick and safe and easy to recover from. So I think they're a great option. From personal experience, I walked out after mine and my wife thought I didn't do it because it went that quickly. So um, <laughs> it, it, was, uh, it, it was it was very easy. It led to two days on the couch with an ice pack that I got to just kind of watch television and hang out. So if anybody needs that in their life, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> so that brings up a fun fact about vasectomies that the month when most vasectomies are done in the United States is the month of March. So 
There seems to be a March Madness phenomenon. Oh my gosh. Men just want to be at home on the couch for some reason in the month of March. Hilarious. Is that news to you, Julie? That is so well known. That is like a... Oh, it is? That is not my wheelhouse, man. I don't... Yeah, that's real funny to me. I had planned mine out for Masters weekend. I was going to watch golf all weekend and then COVID happened. So it didn't... There was no Masters. But hey... It's still the means to an end. It worked out fine. And I also would would talk to your nearest urologist for recommendations on a good vasectomy because a bad one is awful for a lot of reasons. So get a recommendation on a good one. I talked to one of my favorites, Dr. Heeman, who gave me a recommendation <laughs> uh, in, in the local area, which which was great. So I think we should wrap up. I We usually do some rapid fire fun questions at the end. I do really want to ask you... Mara, to comment on what it's like to be a woman in urology. Uh, we have not a ton of women in orthopedics either. And so it is something that we're trying to improve on. And I'd love to hear your side of that. 10% of urologists are women, of practicing urologists are women. Certainly that number is growing with our trainees being more and more women. I was a part of a really great training program that was about 50% female urologist or female residents and absolutely loved it. I think that overall, it doesn't really matter um, whether you're a man or woman in this field. Mm -hmm. In men's health, my specific sub-discipline is even more rare to be a woman. And I have had some patients, you know, be a little skittish about talking about their erections with a woman. But at the end of the day, they really just want to be listened to and they want to be, they want to have good care in this arena. And so when they start opening up and talking to someone who can educate them and listen to them and knows what they're, frankly, knows what they're talking about, they feel totally comfortable. And I've never had a long lasting sort of issue with that. As a good friend of yours and somebody who went to medical school with you, I just respect the hell out of you for Hmm. for being in that position. And I think we need more people like you to be in those positions. And I think as a man who would be going into a urology clinic, we need really good doctors, no matter what the gender. So I think that that, that's just awesome. You're here. Well, thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate that. We're going to pepper you with stuff that's nothing about medicine. Yeah. Lighten it up a little bit. All right. What are we listening to in the car, Mara? When you're driving in in the Pacific Northwest, getting to and from work, what keeps you jazzed? Is it music? Um, is it that, podcasts? Is it what is it? A mix of both. Mm-hmm. I have been more on a music vibe of late, just for a little levity and just getting the energy mm-hmm. levels up. And the new Lizzo jam yes. is definitely it's about damn time at the top of that list. Yeah. So you're not like Jeremy and listening to fucking AM radio <laughs> commercials like we talked about in no, the beginning? No, <laughs> talk radio is for suckers. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy. And urology-based advertisements. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> all urology <laughs> advertisements all the time. <laughs> well, Mara, for anybody listening, is getting married soon. So oh, yeah. congratulations to Mara. I would like to ask a couple of questions on that. The first is, how did you meet your fiance? The old fashioned way on Hinge. Yeah. Yes. That has become old fashioned, actually, I think at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. So that's great. And then I want to ask you about a high and a low of wedding planning at this point. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I would say a high was probably doing our, our tasting, both the cake tasting and the food mm. tasting. Really fun times. Really great food. Nice little middle of the day date that we had, and it was good times. A low was having our hotel block, you know, that was firmly established 
realizing that they the hotel is completely under construction. So oh no, uh, it'll I think it'll work out. Um, still crossing my fingers that it will, but yeah. Otherwise, it's been pretty smooth to be honest. Yikes! Yeah, those last minute things. It's like, are they sleeping in tents now, or what? What's happening? Yeah, yeah that's a little yeah. nerve wracking, especially I know you're coming up. Luckily, it's a big city, lots of different hotels for backup, just in case. Sure, but no one likes curveballs in in wedding planning. <laughs> Who gives a shit? You yeah. love him. You're getting married. It's gonna be fantastic. Yes, exactly. Speaking of curveballs, yes. I was reading your bio, Mara, and can we still be friends, you and me and Jeremy, even though you're a diehard Cubs fan? Of course. <laughs> diehard Cubs fan is right. I grew up two blocks from Wrigley Field, so Aww. it's sort of in my blood. We'll give you a pass on that one then. Appreciate I feel it. like the <laughs> perfect question to end this one on is, Mara, what is your favorite dick joke? Um, <laughs> not fair. Jeez, that's a tough one. Or a patient anecdote of a dick joke that will leave everybody feeling good about themselves. Okay. So, I mean, I said that because I... I had this patient here and he was a little standoffish, I think was just, you know, wary of me. I was a fellow at the time. So I was a trainee and walked into the room, introduced myself. He was sort of just quiet. And then I was, I was doing this procedure on him and he, you know, just asked me, why, why did you get into this field, doctor? And I said, well, for the dick jokes. <laughs> and instantly, instantly we became like oh, best, best friends. friends. Yeah. He knew he was in the right place. And so good job. I say that as, you know, kind of a joke, but you're right, Jeremy, that does help me sort of break the ice here and there. Yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I had a patient two days ago say to me, I love that you have a sense of humor because it makes me laugh and I felt more comfortable. And I was, and it just, it was so reassuring because I try to do that with all my patients. I have to mm -hmm. have fun because if I don't want to show up, then I can't help anybody. And if, totally. and if a patient doesn't appreciate my sense of humor, then they should find someone that's not going to have fun. Because <laughs> it's just, it, it really, it's just like, it's just, it's too long of a career and you see too many patients to not yeah. like have a good time with it. So that is an awesome anecdote. I love it. That guy will remember you forever. Oh, you also did a he's probably, he probably yeah. sent 10 friends to you too. Yeah, yeah. You know, like one would hope, but he tells that joke at every bar he goes to. <laughs> right. I was, get, I was right. getting this procedure done and you know, guess, guess what the doctor said? That's a good yeah. one. So, all right. Well, hey, Mara, tell people where they can find more information on you or, or, or social stuff. Like, uh, let's let's send people to learn more about you. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Seattle Men's Health MD. I'm on Twitter at Mara Heeman MD. I do have to say, when I left Chicago, losing my Instagram handle from Chicago was one of the sadder days of my life because I was, I am the former sausage queen of Chicago. <laughs> oh, I didn't know this. That is, <laughs> that is awesome. And I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sad. Did someone take that throne from you? No, I kept it. I kept oh, it. Oh, good. But, yeah, I was um, going to say. Yeah, didn't really fit into the Seattle lifestyle. And people just find you on the web at the Washington or do you have your own website or? University of Washington website is perfect. Cool. Lovely. Anything else you want to ask her, Julie? No, that was that. Hey, that's the icing on the cake right there. I love it. It was a great conversation, Mara. We really appreciate you being on. We talked even before this podcast a little bit that there's just so many topics here and we probably would love to have you back. Hopefully we didn't uh, treat you too poorly and you'd be interested in that. <laughs> and uh, for everybody listening, if you could uh, rate, review, subscribe, it really helps. Look in the show notes for more information. We will see you next time. Julie, we're still asking. Hey guys, what the health? 
The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. What the Health Podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.